1: Events unfold quickly, casualties can be hard to verify, social media easily floods with mis- and disinformation, and the lives of journalists on the ground are often in danger. The war between Israel and Hamas is no different, and some say these problems are even worse with this conflict. The Committee to Protect Journalists has called the death toll among journalists unprecedented, with at least 36 killed since the war began last month. Thirty-one were Palestinian, four were Israeli, and one was Lebanese. They include Mohammed Abu Hattab, a correspondent for Palestine TV, Ayelet Arneen, a news editor with the Israeli Broadcasting Corporation, and Mohammed Ali from Al-Shabaab Radio. What does it look like to cover one of the most complicated conflicts in modern history as a journalist today? And what do these challenges mean for the coverage you get as a consumer of news? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our guests in just a moment.
0: This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on.
1: Let's introduce our panel. Joining us in studio is Joyce Karam. She's senior editor for Al Monitor. That's a news site focused on reporting from and about the Middle East. Also with us is Tahila Schwartz-Otschuler. She's the head of the Media Reform Program and Democracy in the Information Age at the Israel Democracy Institute. She joins us from Jerusalem. And a voice you might be familiar with, Deborah Amos. She's a professor of journalism and residence at Princeton University. She's also a former NPR correspondent covering the Middle East. Thank you all for joining us. Joyce, I I wanna start with you. What hurdles have you and your team experienced covering this war?
2: Uh, Jen, thanks again. This has been one of the most difficult journalistically wars to cover uh, on the level of getting in touch with the team on the ground in Gaza and verifying uh, information. We've covered... Uh, Syria, as I'm sure Deb, uh, Deb did, uh, we've covered Sudan, but nothing like what we're seeing now. Uh, our biggest challenge at Al-Monitor uh, is we have a pool of journalists we go to in, in Gaza, and it's it's been very hard to locate them. Uh, the communication with them has been intermittent. Uh, I text on, for example, I texted one on Friday and, uh, you know, on WhatsApp when it says delivered, it didn't show delivered till uh, this morning. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've emailed someone else, uh, Rasha Jalal, uh, who actually had relocated to the south. So we thought maybe she's safer, uh, but also hadn't heard till this morning at 4.28 a.m. when she emailed me back and uh, I'm just going to read the few lines she sent and she said, I'm still okay. I moved from one area to another, an area that is safer with less bombardment, but it has no basic life necessities. Food is scarce, so is water and power. What is worse is the loss. Every day I hear news of a friend or a colleague Dying. Everyone who writes about our suffering is getting killed. I am in touch with Beatrice, our editor in Beirut, for an article. Thank you for checking in. It gives me uh, support. Um, this has been a challenge, even with um, the blackout. You know, we heard 10 days ago that it's been lifted, but it's still coming back. I don't know anymore when I send messages if the people are there, or if they will respond, you just have to take it day by day and hope that they will uh, uh, re-emerge. As far as as coverage, we get as much as we can uh, from them. Uh, We're relying on numbers that uh, NPR, others are seeing from the Hamas Health Ministry, uh, but even those sometimes don't go into details on, you know, who are the civilians, who are the militants that, that are getting killed, uh, what, is, what is happening, uh, you know, with the missing. Uh, so for all of that, I think we'll get a much clearer account after uh, the war is over.
1: I mean, Deb, you, you covered this region for a very long time. You've covered multiple wars. What's your perspective on the challenges of covering this conflict?
3: I completely agree with Joyce. I've never seen anything like this. I I was there in uh, 21, uh, the last Gulf War, uh, Gaza War, excuse me. um, And the coverage was tough, but not like this. Um, There weren't journalists dying in the numbers that we're seeing. Um, And then it was the beginning of a shift in public opinion in the United States. There were more pro-palestinian i guess that's that's the way that we term it now uh voices uh in the media if you remember the Walls, uh, the new york times did a full front page um uh, visual of all the children who who had died in gaza at the time it was it was striking uh for the new york times to to do a piece like that it's it, it, i can't imagine them doing it this time there's such um, trepidation with people now speaking out because there has been uh you know some cancel culture uh with with people speaking out and, and I and I think everybody's uncertain about where you can how you can show your uh objections to what's happening. Tehila this
1: war is being reported on from several media ecosystems. And part of your research is around helping Israeli journalists feel safer while reporting information that's critical of the government's policies and military. But I don't know that many people have an understanding of what the media ecosystem in Israel looks like. Help us understand it.
4: Okay, so let's start um, with the media ecosystem. But let me just say one sentence before that. I don't think there was any war or conflict in the history where we had such a major blind spot in the sense that on the one hand, it feels like we are drowned with information, and social media is full of videos and, and testimonials, and on the other hand, we don't have journalists inside of Gaza to actually report of what is going on there. So this is something that I don't remember from previous conflicts, and I think we need to and when take you say, a good look at that.
1: And when you say we don't have journalists in Gaza, there are journalists, they but are you talking more to the point of information getting out or, or who is the we as you define it?
4: So first of all, there are no Israeli journalists okay, thank in, you. within Gaza. So the Israeli public does not get any news. Uh, but also uh, foreign uh, journalists um are not allowed from the Egyptian border into Gaza, so only locals actually report on what is going on there, so obviously there are journalists no um, I don't want it to be you know heard uh, differently, but I'm just saying you don't have you know the regular I would say war journalists within Gaza at the moment so on the one hand we have so much information on social media and on the other hand we don't really know. Uh, what is going on? Um, so let's talk about the Israeli media landscape just for the, for for a second. Um, so as you know, Israel is a small country. There are only about nine million people who actually uh, consume media in Hebrew, which means like a medium-sized city at um, the United States. Um, just like in, in the rest of the um, of the world, some of the ad revenue during the past decade or so was moved to the digital. Um, uh, platforms. So the media is suffering losses, uh, which again influences it. Um, and just like in America, our media is polarized. We have a TV channel that's similar to Fox News and you ha- we have another um, uh, a TV channel that is like uh, CNN. Uh, we have a very com- um, a widespread newspaper uh, sponsored by American billionaire Sheldon uh, uh, Adelson. Um, and we also have a New York Times like Haaretz Daily. So it's more or less, um, I think, like the American uh, media. What we also, I think, need to understand that this current conflict is that um, our prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, is under criminal indictment related to his relationship with the media um, so he has a history of harshly attacking the press, trying to get involved and control and, and not willing to be interviewed by Israeli media. And we've seen that since the war has actually uh, uh, began. He agreed only once to answer questions from Israeli journalists, and even then he read uh, the answers from uh, his paper or uh, from his pre-prepared uh, p- uh, papers. Um, and what he did um, in order to... Uh, uh, to maintain his relationship with the Israeli media were secret closed-door meetings with the uh, media executives. Mm-hmm. So in this sense, again, Israeli media is getting into covering this conflict from a very, I would say, weakened, uh, a weak uh, uh, point. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another issue which is also interesting is the fact that um, Israeli media itself was hit in this, um, conflict very very close to home. Uh, a couple of reporters were massacred on October seventh. One of them, um, together with his wife and his daughter, talking about children is still um, kidnapped in Gaza. An eight years old uh, uh, girl. We don't know what is going on uh, with her. Uh, many also identify, I would say, socio-demographically with uh, the victims of the attacks of the of the kibbutzim. Uh, at, the, um, uh, at the Negev, and this is because um, the Israeli media is usually, I would say, more secular and lefty, and those are the exact population that got hit uh, uh, the most uh, uh, severely. Also, uh, journalists who went to cover the, the, the massacre on October 7th found themselves rescuing people, rescuing citizens when nobody else came to do that, or mediating between people um, uh, crying to help and, and rescue uh, uh, teams. So in this sense, I think um, Israeli media here is in a totally different, um, I would say, position than in previous uh uh, conflicts. So, um, I, 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 want, I want to get to
1: something we hear a lot from our audience about, and that's the verification process and, and what that looks like when you're covering a war. So both the Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, and Hamas are providing their own information about the war. And, and Deb, I'll come to you first. What does that verification process look like when it's coming from from different sources? How did you approach that?
3: Oh, it's very tough because um, in both cases, uh, the Israeli military is not always forthcoming when there is an event. Uh, There's been a couple now shootings in the West Bank between militant settlers who have been menacing Palestinians. Um, There's been some killings uh, in those cases. And People are arrested, but we don't really hear anything. It's hard to verify. Hamas, same problem. They, uh, you know, they put out numbers. There's no way to verify them. So so journalists are stuck, and if you forget to put in where you got that information, you will find yourself doing something, uh, as as we saw that happened in, in the bombing of the Ahli hospital, where people didn't wait. Uh, there's this notion of being first rather than right. And that is getting some reporters into trouble. Um, and they have to back up, uh, the New York times re- wrote a long mea culpa far later than they should have on simply not identifying sources on the bombing of that hospital. This is more serious than it's ever been that I know, as I said, in 21, um, we got such serious complaints about um, some of our reporting. We had to go and, and document everything we did because you get it from both sides, and I think this one is is tougher than I've seen.
1: Joyce, how are you approaching that verification process in your newsroom at, at Al Monitor?
3: It's it's difficult. I, I
2: totally agree uh, with Deb. There are different layers of misinformation and disinformation that's coming on uh, social media. Twitter now is for-profit when it comes to verification. So a lot of the accounts that are verified are tweeting out uh, wrong information. Uh, the, the other layer of this is people are not going the distance and checking on some news. For example, when Hamas leader uh, Ismail Haniyeh was interviewed uh, with Al Jazeera uh, and he said, um, we want a uh, Palestinian state. That was translated that Ismail Haniya wants a two-state solution, two different things. Uh, Al-Ahli uh, hospital uh, bombing, we had to uh, change our reporting uh, at least three times because we got the first version from uh, Hamas with attribu- attribution, the second uh, version from the Israeli uh, military. Then there were more investigations, and still we don't know what actually happened, uh, happened there. Uh, so it's more complex uh, than uh, than other uh, wars we've covered. I would say, too, that we have to be careful with the uh, Israeli military information that's coming out, uh, because I've, as we've seen on Farid Zakaria this week, they are asking the CNN journalist who's embedded with them to clear their videos before uh, they're out. We don't have enough information on targets they're bombing. Uh, there is just uh, general information we've carried out that many attacks and these many killed. What was attacked? And when you say Hamas militants are in a hospital, who exactly? So so this is, um, there is a level of dehumanization in some of the reporting that as your guest from MSF said, uh, the names of the civilians that are being killed in Gaza—we don't know them. It's just oh, another uh, 300 killed today. Oh, this. Is, so, so this is this is really important for us to to ask questions to uh, push on the secrecy that's that's being uh, portrayed by the Israeli military. We're going to head to a quick break with this message we got from one of you. I'm getting
5: my war coverage from my usual sources of news, which include NPR, PBS, and BBC. I find the war coverage devastatingly hard to listen to, and I don't want to be the person who just turns away from it. I feel like it's my responsibility to bear witness to what's happening over there, but it it really is uh, just devastating to listen to.
1: Karen, thanks for that message. We'll be back with more in just a moment.
0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. This message comes from Wired on Wired Politics Lab. You will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Let's get back to the conversation with this clip from an earlier show we had with Avi Asher Shapiro. We discussed the rampant myths and disinformation on social media about the war between Israel and Hamas. What we're seeing now is, you know, this conflict is erupting at a particular moment where uh, not only have you seen the big platforms make huge cuts to these teams, you've also seen changes in in the way that the, you know, t- Twitter in particular works, where they've, uh, you know, introduced algorithmic feeds, where they're injecting people into your feed that you've never, that you might not have chosen to follow. They've allow people to pay for reach um, and append uh, verification. Uh, checks next to their names, not because they're real or authoritative, but because they decide to pay money. For context, at least 14 false claims related to the war garnered 22 million views across X, TikTok, and Instagram within three days of the Hamas attack. That's according to confidential findings shared with Time by NewsGuard. That's an organization that tracks misinformation. This doesn't include the mis- and disinformation that spread in the weeks following the attack. Tahila, how, how has the internet... Complicated, accurate information sharing during the war?
4: So, traditionally, we think of three dimensions of a war you know, in the land, in the sea, and in the air. But I think there is actually a fourth dimension now, and maybe we can call this war the first digital war, which is physical and digital together, because it changes what we think. About war, it does not occur within territorial borders. Uh, what cannot escape to a safe space from it. And it also appears in a medium, as was said before, that is privately owned, like the platforms of social media. Um we've seen since the beginning um, um, uh, of the war uh, a massive uh, foreign interference within israeli internal discourse uh, in social media uh we've seen you know other local interference we've we've seen them getting very inter- interwoven uh, together um and we know that this fidgetal war is actually aimed um first of all at harming personal or not harming uh, actually um um, fostering um, uh, uh, personal and collective trauma, damaging the sense of personal security. Um, it's another layer above the the, the physical uh, 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 layer, and it's also intended to cause um, the undermining of the ability to discern reality, what is really happening.
1: Well, I I want to bring Joyce in here because you're a frequent user of X, formerly known as Twitter. How are you navigating social media and its pitfalls as a journalist covering a story that's changing so quickly?
2: I mean, what Avi said is you always, your starting point is believe nothing, right? Especially if it's on social media, especially if it's not corroborated uh, by others. So that's my starting point. What's been helpful is, and this is a very polarizing conflict, Jen, just not Mm -hmm. between Israelis and Palestinians globally. Emotions are high, uh, different narratives on the same story from different sites. What's been helping me is I try to actually check all uh, official sources. I, I I go to Hamas website, I go to Israeli websites, I go to Hezbollah websites, Palestinian Authority. That just gives you a sense what the other side is saying, what they're saying. But as far as believing uh, third-party information, I would just corroborate it, corroborate it, corroborate it, Uh, check NPR, uh, major uh, channels. If it's not out there, that that means something is off. Uh, I've seen also much disinformation in Arabic, coming in, uh, that then gets translated uh, to English. There was one instance where uh, uh, somebody said Abbas uh, criticized Hamas and uh, said it doesn't represent the Palestinian people. So I said, okay, I'm going to do my homework and I'm going to go exactly to the source. And I went to Wafa News Agency, the Palestinian Authority News Agency. There was no such thing. There was no such quote, but that quote made it on an Arabic outlet, then it made it on English, uh, Twitter, mainstream big accounts, and it's just, it's still probably out there. So we have to be extra, um, Uh, careful. Same with what we've mentioned, you know, the secrecy around the Israeli military operation. We have to keep in mind, who are these targets? We need to do our due diligence and ask questions. I go to our reporters often when I can reach them and ask that this happened with the hospital, Al-Ahli hospital strike. um, I went to Hannah, who was not far from there. And what she said, she's like, it's total chaos. We don't know what happened. Mm -hmm. It's just Chaos, uh, and she said, I don't know. I, I'll let you know when we know. so it's just this this what Deb was mentioning, um, the urge to be fast to be first is coming sometimes at the expense of accuracy and expense of the truth.
1: Deb, I, I see you nodding, but I want to ask a, a bigger picture question here, and it's about the way news organizations, and, and I'll limit this question specifically to Western news organizations, how they prioritize their their coverage. To understand a place, you have to be there. You have to get to know the people. You have to get to know the government. You have to build relations. Having reporters embedded around the world, takes it takes money. It costs money. And, and when economic times are tight, oftentimes that's where we see coverage shrink. And then something happens because oftentimes, unfortunately, we're not talking about places unless there is a conflict. And then you don't have that base of knowledge and those relationships that you need to cover a place accurately. I mean, how are you thinking about that dynamic at this stage in your career?
3: Let me say two things about this. One is as you've noticed, there's a lot of organizations who have flooded the zone. I, I mean, NPR has sent in tons of people mm-hmm. uh, to report. Not all of them have been there before. So I think as a as a experienced journalist, and I'm sure that Joyce does the same, you watch who you know have been there in the past and, and, and you prioritize the reporting of those people because you know they know. They've been there for a long time. They've made those relationships. Um, and that always happens in a story like this. Everybody sends everybody. Um, and, you know, as an as old MP, uh, New York Times correspondent used to say, we surround the story and beat it to death. And we are doing that now. Let me talk about my students. And I say to them, you live in a different world than I live in. It turns out that influencers have opinions on this war. It turns out that sororities have opinions on this war. Fraternities have opinions on this war. That's the soup that they are swimming in. And they can't make heads or tails out of this. They don't know much of the history. Israel-Palestine. And I don't know what we do about this. You know, there's a moment in at Harvard where a bunch of students signed a petition that was deemed to be anti-Semitic, and those kids are going to suffer because of that. Why couldn't we use that as a teaching moment? Why couldn't we Take those statements apart and, and explain, have a webinar, have a teach-in, have a something-in to say, this is why you, you, these, these messages are anti-Semitic. Teach people about the history of this and not just close everything down.
1: I want to get to what some of you shared with us about your feelings about NPR's coverage of the war.
4: I've been a lifelong NPR listener and supporter. I consider myself to be an extremely liberal Jew and never thought I would live to see the day when I got my reporting from places like the Christian Broadcasting Network and Fox News. But they're the only ones who seem to have the integrity to report on the increasingly blatant anti-Semitism that is taking place in this country and most egregiously on college campuses.
0: I've always respected NPR, but lately your news coverage is slanted toward Israel. You'll say how many people in Israel have been killed, but you don't complete that sentence with how many people in Palestine have
1: been killed. So criticism there from from both sides. Joyce, as an editor, you're making decisions on coverage that you might get criticized for. How are you negotiating that dynamic, especially around a subject that sparks such strong feelings in people.
2: No, for sure. And we we are also getting criticized, sometimes getting more views than, than others. Our our job, Jen, your job, my job, it's it's the story. It's the truth. So that's what we we changed. We're not in the business of, uh, you know, airing something or publishing something because somebody wants will feel better about it or because it confirms uh, some biases. We've I'm I'm proud to say that we've covered stories on anti-Semitism. So did NPR. There were a couple of stories actually just last week, and we've covered stories on the West Bank and on Gaza. What's happening? So, we want to cover the truth. We want to cover the story as much as we can. We want uh, the access from the ground. We want the uh, voices of those trapped in Gaza to be to be heard, and uh, that's what we uh, we strive for. But we're one of the few Middle Eastern. Uh, outlets that are covering Israel and uh, uh, Palestinian writers at the same time.
1: Tehila, is this attention Israeli journalists are navigating as well?
4: Well, I think that um, Israeli media is struggling to do this every day, but it's important for me to emphasize that this fidgetal war that I've been mentioning, um, uh, uh, that I have mentioned before, its sole purpose is to confuse us so that we don't understand what is really happening, who is responsible and who is to be blamed, who is the attacker and who is the victim, who will win and who will lose. And in this sense, what is happening is that the traditional media needs to fight here in two, I would say, frontiers. It needs to cover the actual war and it needs to cover its image on social media. And this is a very, very tough thing um, Uh, uh, to do. Uh, And it's not only about fact-checking. We were talking about fact-checking, which is obviously very, very important. It is about the ability to tell a story with a beginning and a middle and an end, amid all this endless stream of information uh, coming to us via algorithms. And it's also... um, about the ability to conduct in-depth discussions on power and representation and, and about land and about existence, you know, all those issues that cannot be dealt with on social media. And I feel that in this sense, we are trying to hold strong here, both, I would say, Israeli media and international media. But the information war goes beyond our abilities. Because as long as social media would be able um, to be unregulated and to become a global order player in those wars, um, our ability to bring you know, a, a wholesome and true picture to our listeners, to our viewers, is going to be damaged.
1: I want to get to one more voicemail we got.
4: I'm Jay Mason, and I work
3: for Azimuth Media covering wars in uh, Chechnya and uh, child soldiers in Africa. There should be more of a peace focus (laughs) in war coverage. Uh, There should be an alternative view about wars, not just interviewing military people, but also people who have worked for negotiations and for the end of wars. So that should be critical in war coverage.
1: Jay, thanks for that message. Joyce, what do you think of Jay's suggestion?
2: I can't wait for the day we get to cover the, the peace efforts and and the day after. And we should bring in these voices. I uh, I do agree. At this moment, uh, we've had a piece on, uh, you know, possible European peacemaking uh, force eff- uh, troops, whatever we want to call them, possibly in Gaza, and all the people we've interviewed. They said, no way, it's not going to happen. So, but but I do look forward. For the day where we can cover peace efforts, not just on Gaza, but a Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Well,
1: well, Deb, you're teaching the next generation of journalists. I'm really curious to hear from you as we wrap here. What advice you're giving them about what it is like to do this job at a time like this?
3: I, I tell them that they need to keep some uh, some concepts in their heads. War crimes are bad no matter who does it. Murder is murder. Um, that, um, you know, be suspicious. Uh, Ask questions about anything that you see on the media. I, I wanted to say something that, that Joyce commented on, and that's you see, you see people, Israel, uh, Israelis, um, Palestinians, who are still in groups that respect each other, that have been working on dialogue. They haven't broken. It's the only thing that gives me some, some um, moment of hope when I'm watching all of this pour out of my social media feed. I look for those moments. I cherish those moments. It is what it is. all we have at this moment.
1: That's Deborah Amos. She's a professor of journalism in residence at Princeton University and a former NPR correspondent covering the Middle East. Also with us, Tehila schwartz Altshuler, the head of the Media Reform Program and Democracy in the Information Age at the Israel Democracy Institute, and Joyce Karam, she's senior editor at El Monitor. That's a news site focused on reporting from and about the Middle East. Thank you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.
5: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.